Hi, I'm Amy Britton, and I'm an investigative reporter. Stay tuned after the show to hear about The Post's new podcast, Canary, The Washington Post Investigates. It's a seven-part series about two women and their shared refusal to stay silent. Available now. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. MJ Hagar burst onto the political scene during her congressional campaign in Texas with her Doors ad in 2018. She was unsuccessful in that effort, but that's not stopping her from taking on another Republican incumbent in this election cycle, Senator John Cornyn. In this week's episode, Hagar talks about why health care is the number one issue in Texas, why she says Texans have buyer's remorse with people like John Cornyn, and why her opponent doesn't exemplify Texas values. Hear more of what Hagar had to say at this special Cape Up Live interview recorded on September 22nd, right now. MJ Hagar, welcome. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. So, okay, I I had a set first question, but I'm going to ask my own set first question. And that is, we started out that the clip introing this moment um, with your Doors ad uh, when you ran when you ran the last time. To me, it was one of the most powerful political ads I had seen perhaps ever. Why was it important for you to tell your story in that way? You know, I think part of why it was so powerful was the moment that it played in. Um, In that moment, people were, uh, you know, being exposed to the horrors of family separation, for example. Um, And, you know, the the fact that it resonated so much with people almost made me a little sad. I mean, I wanted it to be successful, but it was also kind of disheartening to hear so many people reach out to the campaign and say, yes, that was me. I had doors closed in my face, too. I've been trying to advocate for um, disability rights because my child has Down syndrome or, you know, whatever it was that they were trying to be heard by their elected officials and they could completely, um, you know, empathize with that, that experience of going to DC and having your elected officials close the door in your face and, and treat you like if you're not a big donor or you don't have any political capital to barter with, then you don't matter. Um, And so it was kind of a bittersweet thing. It was great that it got the campaign so much attention, but it broke my heart a little that um, people were so gut punched over family separation and and so used to their government just not working for them that, you know, the message really resonated with people. And so you you lost that election that that ad was made for, and now you're running for for U.S. Senate. Most polls I've seen have you around... Five points within five points of Senator Cornyn. The Cook Political Report classifies your race as likely R, which I expected to be solid R, given who Senator Cornyn is. From your perspective, how is the race looking? Well, you know, I mean, if you I I don't love, you know, just talking about like the ins and outs of the data, although I do think the data shows um, that we have a much better shot than Beto did against Ted Cruz. A lot of people think that that Beto Cruz race that if anybody, you know, um, if we couldn't beat Ted Cruz, then we can't beat anybody in Texas. It's actually not true. Independent voters really like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz had a 52% approval rating when he went up against Beto. Um, and, you know, Beto almost beat him. And, and John Cornyn has an approval rating of anywhere from 28 to 32. And they vote exactly the same way. And so you have to try to figure out what the difference is between them. Why does one, why is one so wildly popular in Texas and one's not? Um, and the reason that, um, 
that John Cornyn is not so popular is because he there's not an independent bone in his body. He just does as he's told. He does as he's told by his corporate special interests. He does as he's told by his party leaders. And, um, you know, that's very un-Texan. It's very Texan to have backbone and grit and integrity and stand up for your principles. And so, um, you know, I don't really look at polling that much. Um, I, you know, even 538 recently said that uh, Democrats in Texas are always going to out, well, recently, at least, maybe not always, are, are outperforming the polling, in part because you poll people with a reliable voting history, and we've been 49th or 50th in voter turnout for decades. Mm. So who's a reliable voter anymore when when you have double or triple the turnout at the polls, a lot of the people showing up to vote, which, by the way, the people who are getting you know engaged to go and vote who haven't been reliable voters tend to be not good news for whatever political party is in power, right? Mm -hmm. So we expect to outperform the polls. Um, the polling, we're, we're a lot closer than Beto was in the polling against Ted Cruz, and yet he still almost beat him. So I have every confidence that um, after the debate, we only have one scheduled that Cornyn has agreed to. He has kind of chickened out on the other two, even though he um, told the Texas Tribune that he would be you know, willing to do more. Um, I think that he knows that he can't run on his record. I think he knows that the more Texans learn about him, the worse it is mm -hmm. for him. We pick up a lot more of those independent, undecided voters because my vision for this state is a lot more in line with Texas values and what Texans so, want. So then to that point, you're going to face Senator Cornyn in a debate, assuming he, show, he shows up. So then aside from the politics of it all, what are the policies? What, how, what's your argument? to Texas voters for why they should boot him and elect you? Well, you know, we have so much that's broken in Texas right now and a lot going great. Uh, and I think that the a lot going great is due to the um, hard work of regular working Texas families. And a lot of the broken is due to people like John Cornyn. Um, I actually voted for John Cornyn in 2002, hmm. back when he was saying, you know, we we can't overturn Roe v. Wade, that's precedent. Um, I want a pathway to citizenship for uh, immigrants. Um, I want to protect, uh, I want to close the, the gun show loophole. Um, you know, he, he, he has a history of saying the right things and then doing the opposite. He recently put a Spanish language ad out about protecting dreamers, but he's voted against the dream act over and over and over again. He's voted against bipartisan immigration reform over and over and over again. And when you start to wonder, you know, why does he do something so completely different from what he says? Cause what he says, clearly he knows what Texans want to hear and what they, what they want in their elected officials. Why does he do the opposite then? It's the corporate PAC money. It's the money that he gets from the private detention centers whose profits are maximized by the broken immigration system. 80% um, of Texans, to include 65% of Trump voters, by the way, want universal background checks, and yet he won't support that because of all the gun lobby money he gets. The number one thing is healthcare, though. We had a healthcare crisis here in Texas before COVID. We had nearly one out of every five of us without access to coverage. And I worked in healthcare for five years, and I know that that lack of coverage you know, it's not, we can't turn people, we're not going to turn people away for not having coverage um, from hospitals. And so that lack of access to coverage is why our healthcare costs are so expensive, why we were closing doors to hospitals um, and places around un already underserved places like the rural Texas. Um, you know, that, that healthcare model is not good for the country, but it's also that employer provided healthcare model is not good for Texas. Um, we have the worst uninsured rate in the country. It's a real barrier to small business creation and things like that. And so I'm going to fight for us to have a public option. 
Um, because not only do I want everyone to have access to Medicare, I actually um, was on TRICARE, which is like military Medicare, and it was great. And I want all of my friends and family and neighbors in Texas to have access to it. But I want to also protect their freedom and their right to choose what that access to healthcare means for them. So if they want to keep their employer-provided model, more power to them. But everybody should have access to Medicare. So MJ, so is healthcare the number one issue you're he you're hearing about when you travel the state? And if not, what are you hearing from from constituents? So I would say yes, healthcare is the number one thing, but really it's recovering from the pandemic, and that's a healthcare and an economic conversation. Um, I'm very concerned um, that if we keep John Cornyn, who is the Affordable Care Act repeals top salesman, he's voted to gut the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing condition protections. 20 times. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court is on the ballot now, right? Um, and the Affordable Care Act is coming, it's on the docket uh, for November um, with the Supreme Court. And so, you know, if we lose the Affordable Care Act, even though the Affordable Care Act's not perfect and needs to be improved on, um, mil more, millions more Texans are going to lose their access to healthcare. I mentioned one out of five didn't have access before the pandemic. Right. Because healthcare is tied to employment and we have record unemployment. Um, we now have one out of every three Texans aged 18 to 65 without access to healthcare in the middle of a pandemic. And that's why it's a big part of why it's not the only reason why we can't get the pandemic under control in Texas because people can't afford to get tested. So, you know, I was just down in the Rio Grande Valley. I was talking to a nurse who had just come from a patient who said, you know, you're exhibiting symptoms of COVID. You, you live in a multi-generational household. You go to work and interact with people. I need you to go get a test right now. And she said, I'll go get a test as soon as I can, but it's going to take me a while to put together the $150 it's going to take. And so we have to get people access to healthcare, not just in the middle of a pandemic, but day to day. It's an economic issue as well. I'm very concerned if we have John Cornyn and people like him in power when we go to recover our economy, they're going to focus on recovering the economy just for the uber wealthy, just like they did with their tax reform, just like they did, um, you know, John Cornyn right now, while millions of Texans are out of work and, and many are, are sick and dying and our kids are catching it. By the way, he's spreading misinformation about whether or not our kids can catch it. Um, he's more focused on protecting corporations from liability if they act negligent and, and you know, put their workers in a position to, right. to not have social distance and, you know, PPE. So the thing that I'm hearing about the most is how do we recover from this pandemic? But it is a public health and an economic issue. We need to have people in office who are going to recover the economy for the backbone of our economy, which is regular working families in Texas. MJ, one of the things that would help getting the uh, one getting over the pandemic, but also improving the economy is getting people to believe the science and believe what medical professionals are saying. And the big thing we heard from the CDC director last week was wearing a mask is probably the most important thing people can do um, aside, maybe even more effective than a vaccine in Texas. While you're campaigning, how seriously are people in Texas taking the pandemic? Are they listening to, to the president who is saying it's almost gone, we've, we're turned a corner? Or are they listening to healthcare professionals who are saying we're nowhere near out of the woods yet? So what I mentioned that, you know, I see a lot of politicizing um, and playing politics with our healthcare and with our health. And this is kind of what I'm talking about. I think that when we're talking about somebody in a position as a senator or a president, um, there are their official duties like legislating and governing, but there's also the unofficial things that we need to hold them accountable for, like spreading rhetoric when they speak, people um, listen. 
people listen and they take their cues from their elected leaders a lot. And so downplaying the pandemic, acting like it's not a big deal, acting like, you know, we're not sure if our kids can get it when, you know, when, when John Cornyn said, we're not sure if kids can get it. And I believe it was June or July, we had 1700 kids testing positive for, for COVID in Texas. So, I mean, spreading misinformation because it's politically convenient for you has real repercussions. And so if that causes people to not take the pandemic seriously and not mask and not socially distance, that's another reason why we can't get the pandemic under control here in Texas. And so, I mean, if you're asking if people are taking it seriously, I hate that you can predict somebody's political party affiliation by how seriously they're taking the pandemic. That's, it seems like it should be a nonpartisan issue. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not seeing a lot of crisis management skills. Obviously, we know that this administration and John Cornyn have a history of not listening to science and data around things like climate change. Um, but, you know, the real lack of an ability to take a crisis, and maybe it's because I've been trained in crisis management, both in, in the military and in healthcare, um, but that ability to make decisions based on objective metrics and milestones, like in healthcare We'll say things like, okay, if the ICU beds are at 65% full, we go to code orange and at code orange, these 12 actions kick in or, you know, whatever that those types of, those types of objective metrics are not being used to determine when we open our schools, uh, you know, things like that. So when we're talking about masking, a lot of times people want to make this a, like a personal liberty thing. And I do think that we need to lean to the side of liberty over safety. Um, we never want to lean into safety and security at the expense of liberty. But I will say people's individual liberty doesn't trump, no pun intended, um, making other people unsafe. Like, mm -hmm. I think you should have the freedom to make yourself unsafe if you don't want to. But when it comes to you infringing on other people's rights to not bring a deadly disease home to their children, you don't have the right to do that. Do you think, MJ, do you think it would help if the president of the United States and the, uh, the sitting senator from Texas, if they said, you know, I understand your, your individual liberty, but for the common good, for your neighbors, for your family, wearing a mask is, is a sacrifice that is worth taking. And quite frankly, because of the implications, uh, uh, the implications for the economy, both in Texas and nationally, it's your patriotic duty to wear a mask. Absolutely. I, I really think that if, you know, when we see people, we just have a real lack of servant leadership in government. We have people who ask first, not everybody, but a lot of people, certainly John Cornyn, ask first, what's politically convenient? What do my party bosses want me to say? What are the talking points this week? What am I supposed to be pushing? Um, instead of what is the best thing for our country. And that, by the way, extends beyond COVID to things like um, policing reform and criminal justice reform and civil unrest and protests. And, you know, can we can we get some people who can disagree on policy, but agree to focus on the mission like we do in the military to focus on the mission? And, and this podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, 
and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Okay, yes, we can all agree that we have a responsibility as leaders to put the best interests of our constituents first instead of ahead of, you know, ahead of our own ambition and, and ego and narcissism and political best interest. So we started the interview. I started the interview out asking you about your, your your poll numbers and your race. You're within five points of Senator Cornyn. Let's broaden the aperture a bit and now talk about Texas in relation to the presidential campaign. One of the things that it seems like every four years now, at least relatively recently, Democrats have been looking at Texas as the one place they desperately want to flip from red to blue. And each time it's like, maybe this is the year, maybe this is the year. MJ, is this the year that Democrats flip Texas from red to blue in the presidential race, from your campaigning, from what you've been able to see? I think it may be a different question to say, is this the year a Democrat carries Texas than it is to say flip from red to blue. Um, I, you know, I think we don't have a giant blue wave coming. We have the opportunity to elect a lot of amazing servant leaders up and down the ballot. Our state house, we, we really need to get a Democratic majority in the state house. The, 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 the missteps and the, the damage that the Republican controlled state house has caused by not expanding Medicaid and, um, you know, we absolutely need to do that. Um, but we have the opportunity to elect servant leaders. But I truly believe, you know, a third of Texas self-identifies as independent. Um, I believe we are an independent state that has been a low voter state for a long time. Um, but I think that we can't take things for granted and say this is going to if I hear our state has flipped blue, then that tells me that it, it's a Democratic advantage. And and I I think we have an opportunity to elect Democrats if those Democrats earn people's votes, if those Democrats are reflective of Texas values, because let's be very clear, not all Democrats are very reflective of Texas values. What, so, MJ, let, let me stop you there. What are Texas values? Define those. So, you know, a handshake means something. Your word means something. So integrity, um, backbone, the ability to stand up to um, those who would try to intimidate you, whether they're your party leaders or your corporate donors or whoever you listen to. I mean, when you go to D.C., um, especially not as a tourist, but you go there to try to to do something. Um, it can be very intimidating. You have the history and the marble and the leather and the big, very powerful people try to intimidate you and act like you're nothing, you're dirt under the heel of their shoe. And it takes a very specific personality type to, um, and maybe it helps that I was shot by the Taliban. And so it's not like it's I'm easily scared, but um, it takes a certain personality type to kind of do that and say, you don't scare me because you work for me. You get your power from the consent of the governed and this is not okay. Um, and so, you know, that backbone and grit and ability to take on a tough battle, um, not listen when people say that's impossible. That race is impossible. That incumbent won by 32 points in his last midterm. Um, it's impossible to open hundreds of thousands of jobs up for women in the military because you're going against hundreds of years of military tradition. Um, this fight is impossible. That fight is impossible to hear that and go, mm, no, actually it is very possible and not take things for, for, for granted. Um, 
fighting for regular working families in Texas. Whoever's going to do that the best, regardless of party affiliation, is going to win. Now, you, you've said many times, um, you, you've been talking about uh, in Texas, there's been, it's a low voter state. Um, and that if... Well, it has uh, been. Not anymore. And that gets to my question in terms of voter enthusiasm. So am I to take it that what you're seeing on the campaign trail is increased voter enthusiasm, particularly from those who might be categorized as being in that group of people who have a low propensity to vote? I would say, I would categorize it as, you know, we in Texas, we don't think a ton about what happens outside of Texas. This is our little Republic of Texas. And, right, you could be you your know, own nation. That's right, right? We teach our kids in school that we can still secede, even though that's not true. <laughs> so, you know, our kids do the Texas State Pledge of Allegiance. We fly our flag equal to the American flag. I mean, we're Texas, right? Um, that's another thing that's a Texas value. And, and part of the reason we had low voter turnout is because, you know, we're just focused on Texas and, and we're not big fans of D.C. and what happens in D.C. And, and the minute that John Cornyn went from being Texas to D.C., that's when his approval ratings plummeted. And when he started listening to them more than he listens to us, that's why that's why there's voter enthusiasm. It's not because we have this, you know, new patriotic sense of wanting to get involved in everybody else's business and make decisions for the country. Our 38 electoral votes definitely give us the opportunity to make decisions about the direction of the country. It's because we're looking at our elected officials and we don't see a lot of those Texas values. I don't see backbone and courage and integrity when I look at John Cornyn. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, he has other positive traits. Those just aren't them. And those things are very important to Texans. And so, you know, when I voted for him in 2002, I thought he was fiscally responsible. I thought he was going to be strong on national security, despite disagreeing with him on, on, you know, almost every social issue. But he seemed like a relatively moderate guy saying he wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade if given the, you know, opportunity. And um, the fact that he's gone back on all those things, I feel very betrayed. I think that Texans feel very betrayed. We didn't get what we uh, we have buyer's remorse with people like John Cornyn and and every election cycle is an opportunity to to return that product. Um, and I think its value has diminished. But, you know, uh, we're we're ready to lead in Texas. We don't want to lead in gun violence and and, you know, things like in lack of access to health care. We don't want to lead in those areas. We want to lead in a strong economy. Um, we want to lead in the energy industry, and that means not just holding on to the past technology, but looking at that next chapter in the future. How are we going to lead in 2030, 2040, 2050 when globally energy is trending toward renewable energy? Right. We have people who are only listening to their corporate donors and the CEOs of big oil companies and not listening to the oil workers in Houston and the Permian Basin and centering them and their energy expertise as they say, we're ready. We're ready to start transitioning to renewable energy so that we can keep leading. We've lost 60,000 jobs in the energy industry this year in Texas. It, it is not about, you know, protect big oil to protect jobs. We need to protect jobs by using business acumen. And, and Business 101 tells you that the companies that embrace that next chapter, like Netflix, do great. And the companies mm -hmm. that that don't and put the blinders on and try to prevent that next chapter go go the way of blockbuster. MJ, this is you've said several times now that Senator Cornyn has basically just given himself over to his corporate donors, and one of the I find it fascinating that nowhere in your critique of him is his fealty and allegiance 
to President Trump. One of the things that has fascinated me about the Republican Party is that all the things I grew up being taught, having grown up through Reagan, H.W. Bush, and then W. Bush, that the Republican Party stands for these things. And that Republicans like Senator Cornyn represented beliefs in those things. And in less than four years, folks like Senator Cornyn have completely junked that, trashed that. How much responsibility do you put on President Trump for making that possible for Senator Cornyn? Well, you know, I think that good leaders surround themselves, like President Lincoln is a good example of this, surround themselves with people who will challenge them. Uh, make sure that they don't surround themselves with yes men. Um, understand that, you know, and maybe this is something that, you know, because I spent so long in the military, not just as a pilot, but I did aircraft maintenance for five years and had hundreds of troops under me. Um, in my last maintenance job, I had 85% of the B-2 stealth bomber maintenance under me and hundreds of troops. And so you learn real fast the leadership lessons from the senior NCOs and the senior enlisted folks. Um, and one of those things that you learn is if, if you just want to be told what you want to hear, you're not going to be able to make decisions effectively. And so if you um, have selective outrage, if you only only believe the things that are positive to you, if you surround yourself, if you demand um, message discipline and 100% loyalty, and you shut down anybody who challenges you, you're not going to be able to effectively lead. So I actually think the fealty question, one, People don't like a spineless lapdog here in Texas. They want you to stand on your own two feet, create your own perception of things by talking to regular Texans, not talking to corporate donors, um, develop your policy by talking to frontline workers and teachers and nurses and parents instead of, you know, again, corporate donors. Um, but, you know, in Texas, we really value that willingness to be independent minded and make your own decisions, not have to talk to Mitch McConnell first before you decide how you feel about something or what direction we should be going in. Um, but in addition to that, our founding fathers, you know, when I put on the uniform, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I believe a domestic threat to the Constitution, one, is, you know, the violent removal of peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square uh, and, and, you know, suppressing our, our First Amendment rights is a threat to the Constitution. Um, but certainly the lack of respect for the co-equal branches of government and understanding that the judicial should be nonpartisan and objective. Um, that's not just the Supreme Court, but the federal judges that have been confirmed. Um, this idea of checks and balances, that not only is it um, your constitutional obligation to provide a check and balance from the legislative branch onto the executive branch, it's also the right thing to do. And I believe John Cornyn has failed Donald Trump by not standing up and giving him that check and balance and saying, President Trump, you said you wanted to lower prescription prices. You said you wanted universal background checks. Let me work with you to make that happen. Let's let's tune out the corporate PAC money. We can do this without them. Let's you and I work together for the American people. That's that would have been a Texas thing to do, to, do, to have a grow a spine and, and actually provide a check and balance. Do you think Senator Cornyn is afraid of President Trump? Is he chicken? I think he's afraid of being held accountable for his failures. That's why he won't agree to debate me other than that one debate that he's agreed to. He won't agree to, to the three debates that we're, we're trying to challenge him to do. I think he's afraid of the Texas people because he knows he has strayed from our values. Um, but really, I don't think he's primarily motivated by fear. I do think he doesn't have, he's, I have called him spineless and I stand by that. It's more he has 
power and stars in his eyes. He wants to be majority leader. And I think he's been probably promised some things. Um, he wants to take Mitch McConnell's place. He's his number two man. That's my impression of, of, of his actions. When I try to figure out why the hell he's legislating in a way that's so contrary to Texas values and to, to why I voted for him in 2002, that's the only thing that I can think of. That influence of corporate PAC money, which really only matters if all you care about is getting reelected. Um, and that, you know, following the party line from, from Mitch McConnell. Uh, let me end uh, by asking you th this question that I've asked other, uh, uh, other politicians and, and would-be office seekers, and that is we're facing the most pivotal presidential election, um, certainly within our, within our lifetimes. And I've said that this is a, a choice, not so much between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, but a, but a choice between American democracy and white supremacy. If President Trump wins re-election, what message would that send to you as an American about the direction of the country? You know, I believe we need to send a message um, globally. We are the leaders of the free world. We have a lot of rights and privileges that come with that. Uh, I fear that we are at risk of losing that mantle. Um, the more that we pull back our influence from places like the UN, the more that we abandon our allies and break our promises and our word. Um, you know, there's, I feel like there's a really dangerous precedent of tear things down without putting something back. We want to tear, the, the Republicans uh, and John Cornyn want to tear down the Affordable Care Act, and they couldn't do it legislatively. They couldn't get the votes, even with a Republican-held uh, majority. Um, so they do it through the judiciary, right? They want to tear things down, but they don't have anything to replace it with. They want to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord, pull out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, Iran nuclear deal, without putting anything in its place. No, those things weren't perfect. Um, but, but if you're going to tear something down, you have to have a better idea. You can't just, you know, run on tearing things down. Um, so I think, you know, our 38 electoral votes here in Texas, I do think that Joe Biden is going to win. But I think in order to, because of the vote by mail and who knows what's going to happen and who knows how long it's going to take certain key battleground states to um, broadcast their um, you know, their election results, because our votes have been so suppressed here in Texas and Governor Abbott and others are not, you know, allowing us to, to vote more safely, um, voting by mail, making us choose between our health and exercising our constitutional obligation. Um, you know, I think Texas is going to know our winner early. And if we can deliver those 30 electoral votes to Joe Biden, um, he needs a landslide. He doesn't just need a victory. If he gets a landslide, it helps heal things. It, it helps preclude any of those challenges that, that President Trump is going to issue to his victory. And it's going right. to send a very important message globally that this is not who we are, that we are still the leaders of the free world. And we do put democracy and freedom ahead of authoritarianism and sycophancy and nepotism. Um, so I am concerned of the message that it would send if if um, if Donald Trump wins a second term. I'm, I'm concerned because I talked to you know my allies from other countries that I was in Afghanistan with, and they're they're scared too. They want us to maintain our position as the democracy that other democracies look to for help and support, and as a model, um, and as the leaders of the free world. And I'm I'm very concerned. And we'll have to leave it there. M.J. Hagar, candidate for United States Senate from the great state of Texas. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Take care. Stay safe.
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi, I'm Amy Britton, an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. I'm also the host of the new seven-part podcast, Canary, The Washington Post Investigates. This story is about what happened in the aftermath of a sexual assault, when an unusual public warning connected two women, and how that warning led to a devastating allegation about a powerful man in the D.C. criminal justice system. Listen to Canary, The Washington Post Investigates now, wherever you get your podcasts.